Hey, I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge from WNIJ. And hey, if this is your first time hearing the show, good news. It's a simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives who helped shape who we are. And we want you to be a part of this show with us. Every single educator we have on the podcast, whether a teacher, a coach, or a professor, is nominated by the folks who listen. So please do tell us about the educators who've inspired you and the people in your community who deserve a spotlight. You can email us with those nominations and your story ideas at teacherslounge at niu.edu. And this week, we have something really, really special on the show. I'm so excited to bring you. We're bringing you our first ever live Teacher's Lounge recorded in front of an audience at Beloit College. I got to sit down with Wayne Au. He was this year's Weisberg Chair in Human Rights and Social Justice at Beloit College. He's an author and a professor at the University of Washington Bothell. And his work ranges from standardized testing all the way to rethinking ethnic studies. The title of his Beloit residence was Teaching for Social Justice, Intersectionality, and K-12 Education. And again, I got to sit down with Wayne in the beautiful Eaton Chapel at Beloit College. We also got to take audience questions near the end, which to everyone that decided to come out and join us for the conversation, I cannot possibly muster a bigger thank you. We really, really appreciated hearing you, and there were some tremendous questions. So again, we have got all of that for you here on Teacher's Lounge. So without any further ado, my conversation live at Beloit College with Wayne Al. Please uh, join me in welcoming Peter Medlin and uh, Wayne Al uh, to the stage. Thank you. Hey, hey. Wow. Thanks. And again, I feel like I should start with Wayne. Thanks so much for, for taking the time to be with us and for everyone to, to take some time out of your Thursday afternoon to be here with us. He just mentioned, Wayne, that, uh, that you got your grad work done at UW-Madison. You do work with Rethinking Schools, which is out of Milwaukee. Yep. How's it feel to be back in Wisconsin? How, is, how has so the residence been this week? Yeah, no, it's been, it's been great to be back in Wisconsin. Um, you know, uh, we're thankful for the folks, folks here at Beloit for bringing me out because um, it enabled me to swing through Madison at least and like um, go see my old advisor, Michael Apple at UW-Madison and um, you know, Dean Hess, the current, the current Dean of, the, uh, of, the, of Education there. Um, and so it feels good to be here, although things have really changed in Madison. We could have, there's a whole other conversation we have. Like, <laughs> Stay tuned for the post show on yeah, how yeah, that's yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah, the post show on Madison gentrification. <laughs> um, and so it's been good to be here, and my, one of my good friend, a good friend and former Rethinking Schools editor, Melissa Temple, came down from Milwaukee to visit me too. So it's been really good to get back and just see some old friends and connect with folks. And then um, a really, really nice time so far here. I've, I've uh, been in, you know, I think I've visited at this point like maybe uh, six or six classes at least, maybe, maybe seven. Um, and so getting to know the Beloit students and the faculty um, has, been, has been really wonderful. And it's been a bit of an education for me because it's the first time I've really engaged with, you know, a good small liberal arts college here in the Midwest. Now there's yeah. a lot of them, right? And so it's been nice to kind of uh, experience this different kind of educational setting that I don't normally engage with. So you've been sitting in on some of the classes. Have you been speaking in some of the classes too? Just hanging out, how, what's it been like? Oh yeah, no, they're making me work. Oh yeah, I've been, <laughs> uh, no, I've been speaking in all the classes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I also did a faculty forum, and um, and this is all sort of leading up to the keynote tomorrow evening. So that's exciting. Yeah, that's exciting. You know, I, I we always uh, talk about how our show Teachers Lounge is based on this idea that 
everyone has had a teacher, an educator in their life that inspired them, helped them get to be where they're at now. We just heard a little bit about your kind of teacher origin story, how you got into it. I was curious when we think about that, about uh, you know, your journey into education, which people stand out to you? Any people that have inspired you? Yeah, so I'll name, well, let's see. I'll talk about both some negative inspiration and some positive inspiration. Yeah, so it's, inspiration goes both ways. Right. But I'm not going to name the negative inspiration. Just <laughs> yeah. to, just to you be. either want to be the teacher that you had that you loved or be the teacher that you did not have. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, you know, I have a very vivid memory of um, in my ninth grade world history class at Garfield High School um, and turning to one of my friends there, this guy named Peyton Carter, who, and, and we both kind of agreed that we, were, we you know, didn't like what we were learning in, in this class, kind of, kind of some racist stuff that I, that, you know, anti-Asian stuff that I didn't appreciate, and we both kind of were like, okay, we're going to come back here to Garfield, and we're going to do it differently and better. Um, and we both became teachers, actually. Really? Yeah, yeah. He never came back to Garfield, but he's a longtime teacher in Oakland, California. Um, and then, but some other positive examples, um, certainly uh, a marine biology teacher of all spaces, even though I'm doing this kind of political work I now. I suppose it makes sense, Seattle, yeah, right in the yeah, sound, yeah. Um, uh, Craig McGowan, uh, who uh, just, just passed last year, um, uh, was, was an amazing marine biology teacher, um, took me on, uh, we had field trips to Mexico, to Hawaii, to Ecuador, and the Galapagos. Oh, all that's amazing. Marine, yeah, it was amazing. Um, really inspirational, and he really made me want to be a teacher. Um, really, really just loved him and was as, as, as a mentor. Um, and that was really, he was really impactful. And then another teacher that I've written about is, uh, is Mr. Gary Davis at Garfield High School as well. And he, um, he taught uh, African-American studies classes that were kind of secret. At, really, how do you had, mean? Well, like, it was, you know, it was, it, like, they weren't named it. Like, it was like, it was like language arts 10B. And right. you didn't know it, but if you if you if you were on the grapevine, if you, you knocked the, twice, yeah, yeah, you knew this was the Harlem Renaissance literature class. Oh wow! Right, um, and part of my journey was to like uh, I I essentially detract myself because none of these classes were considered honors, and I told my counselor, I look, I want I want to take these classes, and so I took some underground like uh, black literature courses and also uh, black history courses as well, kind of with this teacher, and, and that content was really impactful for shaping my, my political understanding of education and curriculum in the world. That's interesting. We mentioned when we were introducing you that kind of the name of this year's residency is Teaching for Social Justice, Intersectionality in K-12 Education. I kind of wanted to break down that title just piece by piece here. And first of all, just getting to the teaching for social justice part of it. Like to you, you know, specifically in America in 2023, I know you could go in a lot of different directions with this, but what does it look like to actively teach for social justice? Yeah, you know, I think there's a fundamental principle here that's actually not that radical, right? And everything's really political right now and sure. polarized. But the fundamental principle of teaching for social justice is that we ground our education in the lived experiences of our students and their communities, right? That's, it's very basic. And so what that means then is that we have to sort of take into account like, what are my students experiencing? And because of their identities, they're experiencing all these things like racism, uh, you know, environmental injustice, uh, housing inequality, you know, gentrification, whatever. Yeah. Like these things are all impacting them around, uh, you know, the anti-trans and anti-queer bills that are being passed. Like these things are impacting them as people. And because they're in, my, in your classroom, then these are things that you should be teaching. And so, teaching for social justice is really just about engaging students and their worlds. Yeah, it, it makes me think of there's a. A part in your book, I think this is in a Marxist education, where you say that you witnessed 
how curriculum could help students feel like the subjects in their own lives, not just objects being acted upon by external force. I assume that's a big part of it, right? Is it's not just, you know, here's the things that are going on in my community, but also, you know, here's what you can, you can do about it if you want to be a part of change. Yeah, I think that's, that's, a, that's a very specific piece of this, right? Like, and, and really what you're talking about goes to Paulo Freire and the idea of liberatory education. Mm. And that was really Freire's language around how do, how do we have students become subjects of their own lives yeah. and not objects to be acted upon. And so then the purpose of like learning about you know, what, our, what our world is doing to us, what, what our worlds are doing to us, what's happening in the world, um, our students' lives, like the purpose of engaging in that kind of education then is for them then to, to develop some critical reflection skills on that, on those issues they're dealing with, and then and help them um, be sort of more empowered to like think about like how to be how to be active agents and help change the stuff that they're that they're experiencing, the injustices that they, that they might be dealing with. Right, which is interesting because you see a lot of when you know you mentioned those those bills that get passed, whether they be anti-trans or anti-DEI. A lot of times there's uh, people, especially you know on the right, that'll make an argument about like, oh, if you teach about you know structural racism or oppression, that it, you know that it just makes everyone feel bad. But you know there's part of it, like you said, of it, so it's interesting. It's like the opposite of what you mentioned of being subjects, where they kind of paint it as if that makes people feel like objects. You know? Yeah, yeah, and I mean honestly, I mean. In a way, like, we, in a way, I just want to say, like, well, we should feel bad, right? Yeah. I mean, like, these, these historical injustices and have, are central to our institutions, you know? I, right. and, and I'll be really honest with you, um, and this is no knock on Beloit, per se, Beloit College, per se, but, like, like just as an, as an example that's right here outside of our door, like, the fact, like, the experience of walking on a campus and, and being amidst the burial mounds has hit me really hard since I've been here because it, I'm, like, I'm like, wait a minute, we're on like sacred space and this is this institution that's built here on the sacred space. Impossible to ignore. Impossible right to ignore, yeah. right? Um, and I, I like, we should feel bad about that, right? Yeah. Like there, there's something that it, it, we, you know, if we're humans and we understand our relations to other people um, and they're suffering, then, then we should be aware of that and we should, we should seek to own whatever culpability we might have and then also seek to change things and make things better, right? So that's part of that whole process. Yeah, I wanted to go back to, we mentioned that this is all happening at this specific, extremely polarized time, where there's all sorts of different, you know, again, whether it be anti-trans or about diversity things going on. How does it feel to, again, just be doing this work specifically at this moment in time right now? Um, it's, it's both scary and exhilarating, right? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it's scary for obvious reasons. You know, when you look at what's happening in states like Florida, um, but even, you know, not just states like Florida, right. Texas, um, even around Wisconsin, whatever, even in Washington state too, like where I'm from, um, you know, there, there can be real repercussions to doing this work. We see, we see, you know, folks, you know, attacking like drag queen story hour for goodness sakes, right? Like, like right, we see <laughs> death threats for death threats. school board members and yeah, things like death that threats, all the time. I mean, I mean, what, yeah, I mean, and death threats on schools. I mean, one yeah. of the activist things I've done is around Black Lives Matter and schools work, and that all spurred, that all, that all grew, was spurred by a death threat on my, um, a bomb threat on my son's elementary school because they were doing, really? like, oh, they were doing geez. Black Lives Matter work, right? So, so there's, it's, it's scary in, in that regard, um, um, but it's exhilarating because it also, like, what I mean is, like, you know, the, this current backlash to me is a direct response to whatever advances we had, we made during sort of the 
the two waves of uprising around the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Um, but and it, and it and it shows that there we're like it's exhilarating because we're just it, we're in this pitched struggle around sort of the identity of the nation and and you know really um, trying to wrap our heads around about like what does it mean to you know address you know race and and other forms race racism other forms of oppression in this country um, and and like like there's an excitement to it because. There's, I mean, there's a thing happening. You, the thing to understand is that backlash is only happening because we had some success, and I think it's important to get. And the other piece I'll add to this is to say that another little thing is like, you also don't know when you're gonna step on a landmine, and that can be a little bit hard in this mm. moment. You know, because social media, Fox News, whatever, things can just suddenly explode. And so my friend who came from Milwaukee who came to visit me, uh, Melissa Temple, has been in the news this week. Um, oh, really? This week? She's the Waukesha teacher who's, oh. who, went, who was going to teach um, uh, uh, Rainbow Land for her first grade students, and then she was told that they couldn't do it. And now she's been on CNN, and she's been, it's been blowing up all over media. You know, it's a Dolly Parton, Molly, my, Miley Cyrus song, um, but because it's about Rainbow Land, like, they were told they couldn't do it. Can you, can you imagine that? And so now she's, she's been busy this week. It's a good thing it's her spring break, but she's had media stuff, like Don Lemon is like, okay, I want you to come on my show. Like, it's, it's this whole thing and you just don't know when that's going to happen to you so yeah and, and your work talks a lot about like talk about you know things being reactions and actions your work touches on just the long history of mm -hmm. the struggle about content of school curriculum and i think again this is part of your book is that it all comes down to this seemingly simple question of what knowledge should children learn what <laughs> right? knowledge is important right Yes, that is one of the big questions in it across the history of education in the United States and probably history of the world, right? Um, and a lot of it has to do with like, you know, education and knowledge, it holds a particular uh, cultural value in, in, in our society, in any society, right? Because that's how we uh, reproduce culture. That's how we reproduce the knowledge of ourselves. And so, you know, now, right now you can just see how contentious that is. Um, because we, we, we don't like we can't agree on what is sort of the you know what should we all be learning about what what you know what is the identity of this country and so um, you know, do we teach that race and racism existed for instance or do we just kind of say oh no it didn't and the U.S. is, except, is just exceptional um, and we've we've we fixed all that stuff right um, you just get these tensions and it's that's gone on a hundred years ago that went on of people trying to decide what what kids school kids should learn um, it's 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 just uh, it's it's just a sort of a perennial um, question in, in education. Right, and not just what counts as important knowledge, but who gets to make that decision? Right. Who are the people in power that get to say what is that important knowledge? E exactly, and that's changed uh, across the years. Um, school boards have always been very powerful in, in this situation. Yeah. Uh, I would say um, more recently we've seen um, the rise of curriculum makers and test makers and those corporate entities that right. are profiting off of public education as a sort of an in, as, as a knowledge industry. Um, they end up um, controlling that. And then as we've seen very recently with the, um, the struggle over the African American Studies uh, AP exam yeah. in Florida, we basically ended up having Ron DeSantis deciding the African American Studies curriculum for AP, which then becomes the, the curriculum that students taking the African American Studies AP exam across the country are taking. And so now, the DeSantis version of African American Studies AP is the national version of African American Studies AP. Right, because there was like the college board was saying that oh, we were going to make these changes anyway, and everyone was like, ah. <laughs> yeah. And to be honest, that was 
all smoke and mirrors from the College Board. The College Board has never been a progressive organization. It's always had uh, regressive politics, uh, especially around race, and that goes into the, even the history of the AP. But there's a whole other podcast to do around that. I so. do want to ask you a little <laughs> bit about some of the origins of standardized testing and yeah. things like that, because I think that's, you, again, you touch on that in your work, and I think that's really fascinating and really, like, things that are going to make you, like, I need to take 15 minutes and get, catch my breath outside. But this question about, again, what counts as important knowledge and who gets to decide that? Again, I think you talk about like the answers to those questions are inherently political and that you still hear a lot. And I was actually, it reminded me, we just had a conversation a couple weeks ago before this. And within just these last couple weeks, I heard another like really important education leader in the state of Illinois that was doing an interview where they were you know, asked about all these you know, attacks on, on DEI, diversity initiatives, school books, and they said, oh man, that's really disheartening. Schools are apolitical. <laughs> and I thought that that's, again, you talk about how there is no such thing as a non-political institution or person. Yeah. And, I, you yeah. know, I, I, because I'm not, I'm not here regionally, I don't know who you're talking about. That's okay. I thought but, that I would not quite put them on blast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but the irony is that the statement that anything is apolitical is itself a political statement. Right, because um, because it's 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 asserting a kind of neutrality that is romantic and doesn't exist. It's it's a phantom, um, and because so that's the thing is you know I was just telling some students earlier in a course today like you know when we are as educators we're dealing with institutions. The institutions have their own histories, their own trajectories. Um, the institutions are part schools are part of communities. That means there's this politics all in there. And then we have the students. They come from the communities, and they're bringing all all like all these politics and culture and all this stuff with them as well. And then as teachers and school staff, we it, like to to say that schools are political is to kind of say, oh, that means all of the people that are in the schools aren't part of society. They're just away. They're separate from it, which is a total farce and is is kind of an they're interesting. They're just thing to empty say. desks in a yeah, classroom right? yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So it, it makes me laugh when anyone says anything's apolitical, especially education, um, you know, because as we can see, like, people are very politically invested in schools, and, and, and there is a politics of what's happening, uh, no matter what anyone says. Right, and again, you mentioned that, like, even saying schools are apolitical is political. I think you've said that it's like, that's a way to maintain the status quo, almost, right? Yeah, it is. It's almost like talking about, say, you know, uh, you know, race neutral or gender neutral policies. Um, but if you try to do something neutral in the middle of a system that is not neutral, then it ends up, uh, ends up perpetuating um, these things for sure. We but, talk, yes. so, and so what I would add then is what, then the question becomes less about like, are schools political or not? Because they are. And when we're talking about knowledge, right? Um, then the question is, and it's a much more complex and difficult question, is then like, what kind of politics of knowledge do we want? And that's, that's what community, individual, smaller local communities end up fighting about. So my friend who gets her Rainbow Land song banned from the school musical for first graders, there's an articulation of a particular politics and knowledge that's happening at that school level. Um, but you know, like at my son's elementary school that was doing Black Lives Matter work, that's also an articulation about the politics and knowledge at the school level that they thought was important. And, and that's how you see this sort of more, um, in a way, more democratic, locally produced struggle around what kids should be learning. Right. Yeah, I, I remember I covered one of those school board things where they were deciding whether or not they were going to ban a book by an LGBTQ plus author. And I was looking up some interviews with the author because it's, it's Maya Kobe and her and the book Gender Queer. Yeah. And asking Maya the question of how do you feel about all this happening? And the way that Maya put it, I thought was really striking, which is 
it feels like a community attacking itself, which yeah. you hope that those conversations about education locally can be a, more productive than an attack, but that really is how it feels at so many different school boards for so many different reasons now. Yeah, yeah, it's because that's the thing is like everybody is in every community, even if, yeah. they, even if you don't know it. And so you end up being this attacking yourself. And the part that really disturbs me is the, it's, it, it operates out of a place of a kind of fear that is just unhealthy and really unhuman. Like um, there's a worldview around, around fear wrapped in that that really actually makes me scared. Um, you know, I'm someone who like, you know, I love people and, um, you know, I work really hard to like understand people's circumstances and what they're going through. Um, and even these conservative folks banning this stuff, I'm trying to understand like, okay, what's driving that? Um, um, and this like, like the, the fear that's driving folks to, you know, you know, ban books like Gender Queer, like all, the, all these things, like it, it, it's aggravating because all it's going to do, it just, I mean, partly I would just say, go ahead and ban any book you want because all that's going to do is drive people to go read that book. Right. right. Yeah. Um, but what I fear for is that, is that it's also students' lives and kids' lives. And when you do that stuff and they don't get the support they need, that directly leads to like death. I mean, like suicides and, and self-harm and that kind of stuff. Um, and so that to me is the, is the really dangerous side of, of, of the, political, the, the political conservatism that's happening around these book bannings and stuff. Yeah. We touched a little bit, we mentioned high stakes testing and standardized mm -hmm. testing. I wanted to get into that a little bit. They mentioned that one of your books, Unequal by Design, is about standardized testing. I think you mentioned that you just wrote a second edition for it. Second so edition, yeah, yeah. What, what drove you to do the second edition now? Um, first edition was done like 2009. A lot's changed since then. <laughs> and and uh, the second edition is way better. I rewrote most of it. So, and so stay tuned for that yeah, one. Yeah, you won't, yeah. You're gonna want the second edition, <laughs> hardcover, get it signed. <laughs> um, yeah, and so uh, just, to, just to rethink how to articulate and talk about testing in ways that are more accessible and bring it up to date with the research and that kind of stuff, so. Could you pinpoint kind of some of the biggest things that have changed since that first edition that you're like, the second edition, we absolutely need to get hit this much? Yeah, well, I've done, I've done a lot of presentations about testing since then, yeah. and especially to like groups of parents. So I'll get like lo local PTAs reach out to me as a professor and like, hey, could you come talk about this with our, with our school community. Um, and that's really helped me think about, okay, how do I pitch this to parents and help folks who aren't academics understand what's going on with tests? Um, and so that's one of the big changes, just to kind of like shift the language and really like aim it at, um, you, know, uh, you know, the community members, like regular community members, just to how do you engage with this, this work? Um, but some other sort of big things, you know, for instance, one of the things that I love pulling together is this whole idea, like, what are the tests really measuring? And, and if you look at the research, for instance, there's some mind-blowing stuff, but, like, most people don't realize that, you know, your average uh, standardized test is, is, like, the test score basically can be, measure, can be measured by, like, 70% of its measurement can be um, connected to uh, socioeconomic status of the community. Right, um, you know whether kids have food or housing or medical care and that kind of stuff. So, like most of the test score is actually these other factors. And then there's a bunch of other stuff like um, showing that okay, certain amounts of test scores are actually related to green space, right? Green space. Yeah, yeah. Like how much, like how much green space there is on the school grounds actually correlates with a, with a portion of a test score. In their score. community too. Yeah, green yeah in their community. Yeah. Yep. Um, there's also a research around, uh, for instance. Um, uh, let's see, uh, uh, cognitive fatigue. So if I give you a test in the morning, you'll do better than if I give you the test at the end of the school day, 
right? Because if you think about it, you've, you're, at the end of the day, you've been working through stuff and then you get, do this assessment, you're gonna do worse on the assessment. Um, and so basically it's just to highlight that, that there's all these factors that contribute to a test score that, that we think it measure, it's measuring teaching and learning, when actually we might be measuring all this other stuff, green space, fatigue, there's a whole bunch of other things we could be, that It reminds be. me, I, yeah, I did some reporting in the fall that was about how with the pandemic, there was all this federal ASSER funding and extra federal funding, and that there were a bunch of schools regionally in Northern Illinois, Southern Wisconsin, that were using those to put air conditioning in schools yes. who had never had schools before. And every single person that I talked to, every administrator, every teacher was like, yeah, students do way better when there's air conditioning versus when it's 90 degrees. And I think that's something that's like intuitively makes sense, yes. but we don't necessarily always link directly to something like test scores. Yeah, absolutely. That would, that's another example in my book, that heat has been shown to correlate with differences in test scores, absolutely. Um, and so it just, it just raises this really big question about what are these tests measuring? Um, and if it's not really measuring teaching and learning, because that's the thing, right? So you just talked about administrators getting air conditioners to yeah. improve test scores. <laughs> so has that ha it's, they, didn't, they didn't say, oh, we're gonna teach in this way so students can learn more so they can do better on the test scores, do better on the tests. They got air conditioners to do better on the tests, which really is really telling that, I don't maybe these tests aren't really measuring any of the stuff that they claim they're measuring. We're gonna get more into that. Okay. I, you know, I wanted to just, so like, specifically standardized testing, I know that colleges, but this has been a big trend over the last five, 10 years, sure. where they've moved away from requiring standardized testing like the SAT, the ACT for admissions purposes or for scholarship purposes. In fact, I, I went up and I looked on the website for Beloit and it is test optional yep. here. And in fact, it says, I thought this was fun. It said, we are quote, unabashedly test optional. And I was like, that's a very interesting way to phrase that, unabashedly. But yeah, so K through 12 schools though, and are not getting rid of these assessments. And it was interesting that during the pandemic, especially you know, early on in 2020, in the spring, there were no standardized testing. And then, at least in Illinois, I'm not quite sure about Wisconsin, but the following year, those things weren't required either. These were optional. And again, we, we had this conversation a couple weeks ago where it's like, that happened and nothing got lit on fire. Yeah, yeah, there was, you know, the pandemic's been terrible, obviously. So, Understatement of the century. But, uh, yeah, like, but one, it, was, it was almost magical to me because it was like, okay, pandemic hits, and then you know, school shut down, and then suddenly out of the federal, you know, Biden administration, we get word, okay, we're not gonna, no, no standardized testing. And I was like, magic. Yeah, they could right? do that? Right, it's magic. <laughs> the, te the test, like we went, and the test disappeared. Look at that. And then the other beautiful thing that happened was like, it all kept working. You know, we didn't, like, the school, schooling didn't end, and, you know, colleges could still admit students, and all the stuff still happened, and we didn't have the tests, and it was like, we got this kind of view of like, oh, wait, we can, like, education can work without this whole thing around high-stakes standardized testing, you know, which we didn't really have in the 90s. Like, it's not that long ago, I mean, at least for me. It's not that long ago. For me, it is forever. It's not that long ago that we didn't, like, we didn't have this thing driving our system of education. Um, so it just gave us this taste of like, oh, we can still teach, schools can still operate, um, kids can still learn, and the tests aren't there, and that's okay. How does this happen where, like you mentioned, this is stuff that wasn't even around in the 90s, but now feels completely indelible, completely inextricable from the education system. That happens really quickly, you know, like yeah. within a generation. I assume that ties back to the kind of 
corporate interests and things that we're talking about along those lines. How does that happen where that becomes completely just part of the fabric of education within 10 to 20 years? Yeah, well, I, I want to be clear, like, the tests have been part of our system of public education going yes. back for 100 years, yes. right? Um, but, that all, but I also want to be equally clear that, you know, sort of corporate roles in our education policy and structure also goes back 100 years mm. as well. Um, you know, the beginnings of our systems of public education in this country, you know, going into the early 1900s, um, have, were really shaped by sort of like factory production, right? And seeing principals as managers and teachers as, as you know, shop floor assembly line workers. Um, that's students been all, as products. Students as products, right? Getting stamped, going through, you know, get your diploma, bing. All right, we're in go Pink on. Floyd. Yeah, yeah right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so that goes back 100 years, right? Um, and, so, and so that logic's kind of been there, and you've just seen these bumps in history of when these times in these times in history when we've just seen these upticks and these bumps. So um, when 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 uh, Russia uh, you know sent Sputnik up, um, like the U.S. was like, whoa, okay, we got to do more science. Like like we, we need to do better in like in like they didn't call it STEM back then, but we need to do better in STEM education um, and because we need to catch up to the Russians. And then you saw this uptick in in thinking about standards and thinking about testing and that kind of stuff. Um, and then we and then in the 80s we saw a similar thing. We had um, uh, the Reagan administration, um, you know, um, basically, you know, en ends up doing its whole sort of report and, and ends up, you know, we see this huge push for, for state standards and, 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 test, and tests, um, it, but didn't quite stick. And then we got moving through the Clinton administration. It's always, and it's always been bipartisan, by the way. I want to be clear. It's always been Democrats and Republicans, both. Um, and, then we, and then we got into, um, you know, moving through the Clinton administration, built up the standards, and then when Bush, when Bush came into office, then um, that's when we got No Child Left Behind, and it was this bipartisan effort that was connected to corporations as well. Um, business leaders were on, like, major boards and panels, like, developing this stuff, um, and suddenly we had essentially nationally mandated high-stakes standardized tests, and that was, like, it, and that's been what we've had since 2001, basically. Interesting. And we mentioned, so then the pandemic happens and then, you know, they snap their fingers, these things don't exist. But then, you know, now we look back, you know, three years out, it kind of feels like we've kind of just went exactly back to the way that things were before, right? And when you talk to school leaders, when you talk to administrators, they do, you know, often acknowledge some of the issues with high stakes testing. And they'll say, the thing they love to say is, well, it's just one tool. It's just, it's just one tool in the toolbox <laughs> yes. among many. But I think you would argue, uh, what are we even measuring? Why, is it, why do we continue, even after that massive disruption, why do we continue to cling to these? Um, you know, I, I put it in terms of, of, of our country being addicted to high-stick standardized tests um, because um, we have this want and this need to simply quantify everything and then also simply compare everything. Um, and that's very much connected to, I would say, it's, in my mind, I, I connected to the rise of sort of neoliberal politics and the shaping of everything around markets. And the te and testing enables us to uh, shape education as sort of a quasi-educational market, right? And then so you get the test becomes the measurement of the kid or maybe the teacher or the school, and then you can compare them to each other, and then parents can start making choices about where they're going to send their right. kid. This school's right? math is an 81, this kid's is a 72, so that means that that school's better. Right, and so I'm going to send it to, to this school, and then that school's going to get the resources from the state, right? And so it, you get this, and, and then charter schools fit into this conversation as well, because then it becomes public schools competing with charter schools for market share of students, right? You get this whole thing. And so 
um, it's really it becomes really embedded in our, in a way, popular culture around ratings and metrics, and we we always want that simple thing. And I want to be able to like look at my like, oh, is my kid learning? Oh, they got they got a hundred on this test. That means that must mean that they're learning, um, and or that must mean that they're smart, right? Right, uh, and it's and easy. I'm, I'm busy. Yeah, you got a hundred. Perfect. Move on. Yeah, right. And so it's simple. It's fast. It's easy. Um, and 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 we can we can uh, we can audit it. We can use it like we can make use it for systems of accountability, and it's efficient, right? Um, efficiency has driven a lot of education as well across the last hundred years. Right, which makes sense going back to the kind of factory model yep. that you mentioned. And going back to the history, I do want to again ask if you could go in a little bit into the 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 origins of high stakes testing in America. So this is another thing that I think I read in either one of your books or an article and then we talked about that I was like, well, I had no idea that that's what that was. Yeah, so if we go back, you know, a little over 100 years, even from now, um, you know, the, the, the first, our, our standardized tests really originated with IQ testing, right? And so IQ is, this term, a lot of people use the term IQ and don't really know what it means. It means intelligence quotient. I could have told you that. Which, yeah, is, no. which is basically um, your physical age uh, divided by your cognitive age, right? Which assumes it's that like there's BMI for the mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, it is, it is. It's like BMI for the mind, absolutely. Um, and so uh, it was developed by this this guy named Benet, who was a French psychologist, who really developed an, a test to like try and just assess whether young children might have had a developmental disability, and then just see what kind of supports they would need. What happened though was like these very sort of crass, pragmatist U.S. psychologists brought Benet's test over. Um, and they kind of infused it with their own very much eugenicist notions of like IQ being a genetic um, uh, disposition, genetic, genetic trait, um, and then started to believe that their tests were measuring like concrete biological intelligence, like that was a thing to measure. That they could be like, this race is smarter than this race. Yeah, and so they, they, they gave that test, they gave their tests, this is, these, this is folks um, like, you know, uh, Yerkes, uh, there's a few different psychologists. Carl Brigham, who's the founder of SAT, was part of this crew as well. Um, and they, they gave their tests to a bunch of uh, World War I army recruits, and they took that pool of data, and they basically ar they arrived at these conclusions of like, that, that, they, that they had objectively figured out that poor people were less intelligent than rich people, that white people were more intelligent than, than, than black and brown people, um, that uh, folks born in the U.S. were more intelligent than immigrants, right? And, they, and this became their science, the pseudoscience of eugenics and stuff. And that is at the heart of standardized testing. And those people were responsible for directly making the tests that were then adopted by school districts and started to be adopted by school districts across the country. And that's the legacy of our, of our current system. I should have never said BMI for the mind, because some influencer is going to take that and start selling like master classes or something. Probably, right? <laughs> or at least you should have copyrighted it. Um, but, and the thing is, a lot of people will say, oh yeah, that was 100 years ago, we have different tests now. And right. I'm like, okay, yes and no, right? Because, you know, when we look at the, if you just look at the outcomes of our major standardized tests now, guess what we find? Oh, we have quote unquote achievement gaps between rich and poor people, between black and white students, we, like, like with ELL students and native English speakers, right? And you go, well, wait a minute, if it's a different test, then why is it producing the same outcome? Now, I want to be clear, I, I'm not, I, I, really, I don't believe in biological IQ. I think IQ is a constructive notion. Um, um, and, but, what I, but what I'm saying is maybe these tests aren't really measuring what we think they're, it's, they're measuring um, and we still have the same outcomes with the tests now that we did 100 years ago no matter what anyone, like no matter how they paint it. You kind of answered my next question before I even said it which was about this idea of achievement gaps because this is something that a lot of people talk about and a lot of people focus yeah. on and I think that there's meaning to be 
I guess, progressive in the education space, that we need to, you know, uh, close these education, ga- or, you know, we're uh, test like NAEP for math scores, that yep. we need black and brown student scores to get up to where white students are, things like that. So you t- is that even a helpful conversation? Totally unhelpful. But, and, and yes, here's the thing. There's a lot of sort of liberals who say, we need to close achievement gaps. That's what the whole No Child Left Behind Act was built upon, right? The idea of closing achievement gaps in, in education. And, and when we say that, popularly, people think, oh, yeah, that's great. That means we're going to have equality, right? That means that, the, that, that you know, all the, all the poor kids are going to score the same as the rich kids. Um, the problem, the reason, but that's actually like incorrect. It's an actually incorrect understanding of how the tests are structured. And I'll put it in a common sense way. If we're being more technical, we talk about the idea of a bell curve, right? right which is a normal distribution curve and all this stuff. Um, but let me put it to you this way. Um, basically, because, because of this, this idea of the curve, uh, what's considered a good assessment is, is supposed to um, have a certain number of students fail, a bunch of students in the middle, and a certain number of students do really well. Right, that curve of students in the middle yes. and then students on either side. Yeah, think, of a, think of a hump, right? Yes. Um, and that's considered a good, accurate test. Um, and because of that, that's the way, like, because of that, when students take tests, so think of it this way. If I gave all these students a test and everyone passed, what's, what's going to be the public response to that? Test is too easy. It's too easy or... People cheated, or right? <laughs> I should have won right? that. Yeah. Or if we have the reverse curve with a bunch of people at the bottom end and everyone fails, what's everyone going to say? Test is way too hard. hard. Right. Okay. So if we have this bell curve. We have the tests are made so that some fail, a bunch in the middle, and some do really well. Now, if we talk about achievement gaps, then logically the way those tests are constructed, the way that, that we're on that curve, you can't have all the poor kids passing and all the rich kids passing, right? Because that would put everyone at the front of, of the that would move the curve to the front, and everyone would say the test is too easy or folks cheated, right? The if we the, the only way we actually like the way the whole tests are constructed, if we're talking about closing achievement gaps, all that means is we are um, making proportionate passing and failing for all subgroups. That means we have equal amount of poor kids and rich kids passing and failing. Equal amounts of black kids and white kids passing and failing. Equal amounts Asian kids and Latinx kids passing and failing. Doesn't mean everyone passes, it just means we have racially and class and linguistically proportionate uh, or, or sped students proportionate passing and failing. Um, there's no equality there, it just means we're, we're all doing the same. Because when we say achievement, it makes it seem like the goal involved is that everyone gets the top score, right? Like that everyone achieves. Correct, correct. You think that's the case. Oh, we're closing achievement gaps, that's great. Like, no, that just means you're equalizing passing and failure. That's, that's all it means. And then some people will say, oh, yeah, but what about um, standards-based assessments? Like the whole Common Core uh, assessment process was supposed to be what they call criterion reference, which is basically a fancy term for saying we've all met these criteria, right? When you use the word criterion, it just means criteria. Um, and, and they'll say, yeah, so can't everyone meet the criteria and say we've passed? I'm like, well, you could do that, but here's the thing. The psychometricians who do all the data around this stuff, they take these criteria-based assessments like, like Smarter Balanced or Park or whatever, they take that data and they, they end up recompressing that into a bell curve anyways because you can't have everyone passing and failing if it's considered a good assessment by their, their uh, fundamental assumptions around tests, basically. Interesting. We mentioned a little bit of charter schools and that movement. I want to talk a little bit about that really quick. I know that last year here in Wisconsin that the 
legislator passed a bunch of bills that would have created kind of a new state board that could have authorized new charter schools instead of the typical process of, of going through a local school board mm -hmm. or, or other authorizers. It got vetoed because of this whole issue of you know local control. I know in Illinois there's all sorts of uh, bills in the legislature right now about vouchers for, for charter schools, private schools, things like that. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on, on kind of that movement over the last, I, I don't know, 10, 15 years? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've been involved in the movement uh, against charter schools in, in my time, um, and that's based on my larger, my broader critique around, like I just talked about sort of neoliberal and neoliberalism and markets and trying to reshape public education around sort of privatized uh, market systems. And charter schools have been the, like, the sort of spearhead of that movement because what that does is, is it, it uh, tries to create these systems of education where schools are competing against each other, right? Um, and so, um, the, and one of the, some of the biggest issues around that, from my perspective, have been the fact that um, charter schools aren't public, held publicly accountable in the same kinds of ways that actual public schools are. So they're getting public money, but they're not necessarily being watched or governed by publicly elected bodies, for instance. Or have like to follow the same rules. Yeah, or... that, and, and so they may be required to use the same testing, but, but they don't necessarily uh, are required to um, um, accept the same students and that kind of stuff. Now, before I get myself in trouble, though, like, Officially, most of the charter schools will say, oh yeah, but I, we do accept all students, right? Like, uh, like in terms of policy, they're not allowed to discriminate. Um, but the research keeps showing over and over again that the charter schools don't accept as many students with disabilities or as many students uh, whose first language is in English. And then um, regarding students with disabilities in particular, oftentimes they, they do accept students with disabilities, but they, they can't offer services to, to folks at the extremes of need, right? And so, um, and so then, the, so then they, might have, they might have students in special education, but they have the students that um, are lower impact on their resources, right? Um, and then, we're all, you know, there's also all sorts of research on ways that charter schools actually found ways to sift students um, that, that are kind of in the, in the gray areas uh, in terms of who they accept, right? Like, um, so everyone's allowed to apply, but hey, we're only going to offer, you can only get applications here from 4 to, 4 to 5 p.m. on this day, and you're only going to find out that, that information if you're connected to our network of, of parents who, who know that stuff, right? Mm. So technically, everyone gets to apply, but not everyone actually gets to apply, right? And so right. There's, we've had research all over the place. So they end up being discriminatory in ways that are really bad um, and don't really serve the full public. And I think that you, your work has also talked a little bit about how I think there's sometimes an assumption that charter schools always perform better and that students do better at those schools than in yeah. public schools too. Yeah, absolutely. That's always the argument for charter advocates is that, oh, look, our schools are doing this X, Y, Z better and tech scores are better or whatever. Um, and then the thing is, though, like I just talked about how this, the charter po student population is different from the public school population, that actually impacts the test scores, right? When you're accepting fewer students with disabilities, fewer low-income students, fewer black and brown students. Ex exactly. And, and many of the charter schools have, are predominantly black and brown. I don't think they usually, I don't usually see as much discrimination Mainly around just, race. Okay. Um, but certainly around uh, disability, certainly around language, and, and often around low-income, free and reduced lunch. Um, but and we know that those populations bring down test scores. If if you and so by accepting fewer of those students or the, or students those students that um, are, uh, don't don't draw to, like who draw fewer resources from those categories, mm -hmm. um, then uh, that actually artificially inflates the the, the scores. And there's also there's plenty of record too of like charter schools, for instance, waiting until the funding day passes for the district and they get their money, 
and then suddenly you'll see a rise in like expulsions. And then those students have nowhere else to go and they end up going back to the public school, but the public school has already missed out on the state dollars to, 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 to fund that student. But they take them anyways because of the public school and they have to do it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I wanted to, we've only got a couple more questions and then we're gonna open up to anyone that has questions out in the audience. I will give you the understatement of the century that the pandemic has been extremely disruptive to <laughs> yeah. students and families and really has put educational inequalities into focus and you know again the things these things we mentioned about how outside influences things like housing and food internet access that all of those things impact students inside the classroom too and so again i remember having all these conversations at the beginning of the pandemic with people being like this is our time to really reset, rethink how we do things in education. This is, you know, this is a soft reset. And I've been curious about like what that actually has mean over the last couple years. And I wanted to ask you if you feel like, do you feel like the American education system, have we actually made any tangible strides forward or learned any important lessons over these last couple years? <laughs> Sorry, I laugh because cynically, I just have to say no. I mean, yeah. I think, um, you know, we did, we, by and large, we, we, we learned a lot, right? And one of the big lessons that I think, like I knew it, and you probably knew it, and probably most of the people here knew it, but one of the big lessons that the pandemic sort of really drove home is that this idea that we have a separation between schools and home, like that is, that, that disappeared with the pandemic. We kicked those walls down immediately. Yeah, that, that was gone, and then, and then suddenly we're like, oh, right, home conditions really are sort of school conditions, and we need to be dealing with that and see that as sort of a, as, as a sort of a ecosystem for learning, right? Um, and that's an important lesson, um, but, but, you know, it was really just like we got smacked by that with the pandemic. Um, but I, don't, I haven't seen, like, you know, it's not like we suddenly looked at the federal budget and they were like, hey, we need all these home supports for all these students for them to be successful. Let's set aside, you know, we're hey, let's, let's cancel the building of this aircraft carrier and send that $5 billion to public education and the schools and their communities to take care of kids. Like, that conversation We'll see happened. if that news is broken since our conversation <laughs> yeah, started. Right, right. Um, so so I, I've, I've been really disappointed in the fact that we've sort of understood that these resources are really important for kids and learning, um, but we haven't, like, you know, we, it was sort of a, it wasn't a soft reset. It ended up being a pause button, right, um, in most ways. But... The thing that I think is happening now that's been really, it's been so hard for students and teachers coming back to school in the last couple of years. Um, the teachers I talked to this year in particular, and also last year too, um, you know, depending on what state you're in, you might have come back to face-to-face -face learning or, you know, earlier or later. Um, but, the, but the social emotional stress and, that, and, and just the levels of anxiety that kids are expressing in schools now is really high, it feels like a lot higher than, I don't, I don't know if there's research to support it, but it feels a lot, a lot more intense than pre-pandemic. I know that there's definitely research about just overall teen mental health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 so, and so it's like teachers, are, and then teachers themselves are also having their own mental health issues and, and stresses related to this as well. And so, um, you know, I, at least there's been more conversation about attending to social emotional health. Um, but again, I don't see that resources have been put towards it, um, you know, particularly by the powers that be, right? Like, like and it, that's what aggravates me the most is that, you know, we've known for decades, we've known forever about what it would take to fix public education. Um, and it's really a resource question, you know? And it's, it, it's like, 
we just, and that, that's like something totally within our power, right? We could, we could tax the rich, we could, shift, we could shift our military spending. There's a zillion things we could do to actually make it so that our public schools have 15 kids per class and well-resourced libraries and labs and music classes and art classes and highly trained teachers who are paid well and respected um, and counselors and nurses at all schools. Like, we could just do that. that that's a matter of resources. We just do not have the political will to actually do what would be a really pretty simple solution to a lot of issues um, that, that public schools are facing. And looking at those outside issues, right? Like it, looking at housing, food access, all that stuff. Absolutely, right? Like if we, like if, if we just dealt with livable wages for parents and making sure that you know, they could afford to live uh, in, in, in the neighborhoods that their schools are and, that, <laughs> and live there safely and, and have access to medical care, right? Like all that stuff, like you know, the answers are there. We just, we just lack the ability to see that as, as viable because that's outside of a free market solution. Are there any lessons that you feel like you've learned or things that have come more into focus for you as an educator during the pandemic? Um, I, it's really the social-emotional stuff, honestly. Yeah. You know, whether it's dealing with my own 13-year-old son, um, supporting um, the faculty that I, since I'm a dean now, I'm supporting my faculty in their work with their students. Um, it's just that, you know, we need, to, we need to hold everybody closer right now and, and, and have more care um, for who they are as people um, as we do this work in these institutions that can be very alienating. Um, and, and, you know, that's, I'm talking in very general terms, but these, th th these, these things all are connected also to all the issues around intersectionality and supporting folks' identities, um, you know, because the trauma that folks are experiencing is, is definitely related to, you know, who they are as people. And so these issues are cultural and racial and connected to sexuality and gender um, and, and class and, and, and language and all this stuff is all wrapped up in, in how we sort of hold people uh, in this time. And we, and we need it, you know. And, and I, you know, I don't, I have a hard time seeing, like, when are we going to be through this? I'm not sure how many years it's going to be until folks feel like they don't need to be held that much. But we got to hold them right now. Yeah. I've got one more question before we t turn it over to some folks if you have any questions. And this one is a little bit more broad and you might have just answered it throughout the course of our conversation, but it's one that I like to end all of my interviews on, which is what's an education issue you just wish more people were talking about? <laughs> um, you know, I've, I've partly answered that with like, yeah. I, we, should, we should just, it's, it's the resources piece and, and the politics piece. Um, for me right now, at this moment, and so I don't want I don't want to say I don't want to like hype this up as like this is the thing everyone needs to do. But right. what, what I'm working on right now, I've been thinking a lot about Asian American education and how that fits into this whole picture around racial justice and um, and so and the mental health stuff. And so I've been thinking a lot about how like uh, the the model minority in terms of Asian Americans being a model minority uh, has been used essentially as a white supremacist expression of the idea that Asian American kids. Number one, don't experience racism, and number two, don't actually need support in schools. Um, and so, for me personally, I've been thinking through that a lot. And and the model minority specifically um, has a is, is actually is a cause of, of of mental health harm for Asian American kids. Um, you know, it's like the first or second leading cause of death for for Asian Americans ages like 15 to 24 is suicide, right? Um, and and a lot of that has to do with the with 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 the, what the minority does in terms of Asian American psyche. And so that's something I've just been chewing on lately. Um, I don't know if it's ever, something that everyone needs to be thinking about, um, but it's, it's where my, my heart and my mind has been um, just in the moment. Absolutely. All right, well, that was all I had. Is there 
we'll turn it over. If anyone has any questions for Wayne, I'm sure he would love to hear them. I'd love would. to hear from you. I think we've yes. got a microphone headed your way. Oh, let's use, use the mic for the broadcast. We want to be able to hear you on, on, the, on the broadcast, too. Okay. Uh, my name is Brenda Plackens, and my question is, um, what would be a better way to assess, I'm not sure what we're assessing, like, is the information being absorbed? Are the children learning? Are they able to regurgitate information? Are they able to think critically? Whatever we're trying to assess, what would be a better way of doing it, and how would you start implementing that, seeing that high-stakes testing is sort of the law of the land right now? Yeah, so I, 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 like, to be clear, even though I rail against standardized, high-stakes standardized testing, I very, believe very strongly in assessment and, um, you know, because we want to understand what our kids are learning, right? Um, um, and partly in your question is also, I think we're not clear on what's important to assess too, right? Like, is it critical thinking? Is it like, is it regurgitation? Is it, you know, being able to write this essay? Um, and so that gets left up to local communities and local teachers, right? For me personally, I want, like, I, I want my students to um, show me that they are having, like, a meta understanding of their learning and their learning, like, what they're learning and what their learning process is. Um, and so for me, you know, I, I loved doing um, process portfolios with my high school students when I was a high school teacher. Like, um, I, like I would do my social, think of this, a social studies portfolio and students are pulling and work together that they did across the semester and then they have to identify a theme that they, that they see running through the work um, and they have to articulate that theme and then they have to, they have to write and explain to me how, how, the, how each of the, pieces of evidence that they choose is an articulation of that theme and then they have to uh, talk to me about what then what they think they learned and what kind of grade they think they might deserve in that class right and, that, and that's what I think is, is a kind of deep learning that the tests can't even come close to measuring um, it's inefficient right and you can't and you can standardize the process but you can't standardize it in a way that's useful for comparison but again I'm not interested in comparing like you know I don't I don't need you know, I don't need to compare my SAT score to your SAT score, right? Like, that doesn't matter. Like, I'm not worried about that. I was very mediocre at the SAT, by the way. I didn't even take it. I yeah. took the ACT, and I was extremely mediocre there. Right on, right on, you know? That's one of the things I told the students here. I was like, look, like, you know, I was mediocre in the SAT, and I'm a full professor, and I publish books. I do this whole thing. Like, you know, don't worry about it. Like, you can go and, and do good work. So, that, that, anyways, that's the kind of assessment I'd be pushing. Um, but that kind of assessment really can't live within the current policy landscape, frankly, without, without just an exemption. So, um, you know, in New York State, they have the New York Standards Performance Consortium, which is a series of schools that actually has a waiver from the Regents' exams there, um, and they do the portfolio system as their assessment for graduation. And theirs is even more rigorous. They do, like, student portfolios across each subject area, and they, then they have to defend that to a panel that's like teachers, maybe some other students, maybe some community members, um, and that's how they, that's their, that's their graduation assessment. Really lovely, it's much closer to like a doctoral um, defense, basically. Um, but but you, ha you have, at this point, you just have to get some sort of waiver or something to, to, be, to be let out, the, out of the current system, which is difficult and sad, because um, um, it's a much more human approach to, to assessment. Anything else, or is that, did that answer your question? It sounds like you're talking about like, weighing process as much as weighing results, right? Oh yeah, absolutely, because if you think about that process, you know, the process itself becomes part of the learning in the curriculum too. And I, I, that's, that's great, that's what I want. Like, 
you know, it's not, it's not the, you know, it's, it's not the destination that's important, it's the journey, right? And especially if we understand learning is an ongoing thing anyways. And so, um, um, you know, I, I, want, I want my students to be measured across this, this scope of time. And you think about what that kind of assessment does, it's, it's sort of the opposite of a standardized test. A standardized test is like a one-time, timed event that happens here in this space, um, um, and you do good or bad on it, or whatever you do on it, and then that's it. And you, if you do this kind of portfolio thing, like that's like across, you get, you, maybe I'm spending two weeks or two months on this thing. Um, it's, it's this demonstration of knowledge that, that isn't this slice in time, it isn't this one slice event. Um, and, and then it also gives the students power to articulate their own learning for themselves instead of when you have a standardized test, that's a completely the opposite of student power. That's actually totally disempowering to students, and it gives the power to whatever test or whoever's grading the test. Um, it just becomes sort of, you know, the, the portfolio is like closer to the students of who they are and their expression of learning. The test is like far away from students. It's considered objective. And the form of the test is often not an expression of, of their learning at all, um, at least how they would articulate it. Yeah, I hear from some high school English teachers that are, try to, you know, take steps in that direction towards the portfolio where they at least like, you know, if you turn in an essay, then you also turn in, you know, a reflection piece where you say, what was I trying to accomplish? Did I feel like it close? If I got another chance, how would I do it better? You know, that type of thing. Yeah, and that's in line with the research on learning, frankly. Yeah. Right? And I want to be clear, like, I've talked about social studies, you just talked about language arts. Math portfolios are wonderful. Mm. Right? Can you imagine students like looking at their math work and saying, okay, which mathematical concepts am I demonstrating here? And how does that relate to the goals of the class, right? You could, yeah, you totally do it across disciplines. There's no doubt. Excellent. Again, thank you so much for your question. Anyone else have anything? Yes. Over there. Let's get a microphone in that direction. Um, hi, my name is Joya Saxena. I am a student at Beloit College. Um, I, first of all, I really um, admire like everything you've done. Um, uh, it's, a, it's an honor Thank to you. be here. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, I guess like my question sort of revolves around um, this like discourse um, around um, what children are learning in schools. Like there's like we, we know that the term critical race theory was originally coined a long time ago. It, it's it's supposed to be a legal term for mm -hmm. law students, but suddenly like in the past like three years it sort of became twisted into this like boogeyman term like by the white supremacist um I don't want to say like um mostly Republicans like I hate to say it but <laughs> um but I guess like my question is sort of revolves around like um like why do you think that the like like why do we think that critical race theory became like twisted into this boogeyman term and then my other question is kind of like how can we as a collective sort of like um like kind of push back against these policies that are oppressing these kids if that makes sense yeah absolutely thank you for that question and um i appreciate your kind words um yeah so you know a couple answers. Yeah, critical race theory, right, is grounded in legal theory, and um, and and it has some, you know, very core tenets. Um, and in relative to public education, right, there's two streams of thought, and I see this happening amongst my, you know, left radical progressive folks who do this work. Some say, well, we need to be arguing. Well, we're not. We don't do critical race theory in schools. That's a graduate level theoretical 
concept and no, one, no one's teaching that to, to fourth graders, right? Um, and other people are saying, wait a minute, why, why would you say that? You know, yes, we are doing critical race theory, we're just translating it um, to, you know, to, 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 to for students to be able to, uh, you know, like to digest, and we should hold, we should do that proudly, right? Um, because, you know, the, you know, one of the fundaments is just to, of critical race theory is that, you know, like the U.S. is institutionally and historically racist, right? And I think that's what gets the gall of, of the conservatives and the white supremacists is this idea that, that racism exists and that, and that it's fundamental to the operation of this country, right? Um, and I think that's what serves that spark. Now, as for why that, that catches fire and, and then gets transformed into this whole thing, it's almost like we need a media studies person to talk about that, right? Because half the time what I think Fox News does, for instance, is I think they just throw everything against the wall. And then they, and then something sticks with with the with the with the conservative base, and then like and then like the Koch brothers step in and and start like funding groups like Moms for Liberty or whatever, and and start like like putting resources toward like this. Oh, this is catching. Okay, let's like let's build on that, right? And then the resources start going there. Literally, these guys are paying for protesters and stuff, and they're paying for Moms for Liberty and that kind of stuff. Um, and then it starts to build and suddenly we see this, you know, we see the protests at the school board meetings and we, you know, we, we, it becomes this huge thing and then it gets amplified again by the media again and again and again, right? Um, and so I, you see this happening and then in that process, right, we, this has been the case forever, like accuracy has not been like, you know, um, the, the, I don't know what the right, what the right, it has not been the, 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 the cachet or whatever of, mm. of, of these folks forever. Um, you know, and it just spins out and so suddenly, like social emotional learning is critical race theory like what you know like and even just the word diversity is critical race theory like no it's not that's completely different inclusion is and so and then it's like wait you don't want to be you don't want me to be inclusive right like even the most base kind of like safe concept of inclusion of like just making sure i'm taking care of everybody yeah you know, i don't want that okay so you want me to like you want me to exclude? Then that's what you're saying. And fundamentally, yes, that's what they want, right? Um, so yeah, it's it's been incredible to watch this whole process kind of unfold and and just to see how twisted and how um, gnarled it has become and what counts as sort of critical race theory. Just it's it's been bonkers, frankly. Um, and 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 also and I, and, and I'm going to do this tomorrow on my keynote. I'm going to talk more about this issue in tomorrow on the keynote, but. Um, you know, like I think we need to call Florida out for what is being right now, which is fascists, right? This is this is a re this is a resurgence of fascism. Uh, this, all this banning and getting rid of like you know gender studies departments and and like it's you know and then the violence that comes in, the violent threats that are coming on top of that. Um, it's this is what fascism looks like, and we need to start using that F word. I think and not be afraid to. In terms of organizing against it, thankfully there's and again I'll touch on this tomorrow night at my keynote. But but there there's stuff happening too, right? So for all the bad stuff we see, I mean unfortunately it's like the angry shopper syndrome. Those things, the bad stuff makes the news, the good stuff doesn't. But um, you know for instance like at the Zen Education Project, which is a joint uh, project that's done by Rethinking Schools and Teaching for Change, um, um, it's like there there are actually study groups nationwide of teachers getting together who are reading Teaching for Black Lives and talking about how to do that work with their students, right? And the Zen Education Project has been spearheading this effort um, um, uh, with support from, um, you know, actually from, from celebrities, like a bunch of the Seattle Seahawks 
have given to it. Macklemore's given money to it. Pete Carroll, the coach of the Seahawks. So it's very grounded in the Seattle area in, in some ways um, in terms of that, some of that support. Um, but yeah, so these, there's folks who are meeting regularly. Teachers around the country are meeting to like talk about how to do anti-racist education and affirm blackness in their teaching. So that stuff's happening. It's just not, it's, you don't see it on the news, so you feel like, oh, we're being quiet, right? So, you know, teachers are pushing back in those spaces. Um, and then uh, there's other spaces, of course, like, um, uh, you know, students have been doing walkouts in response to the anti-trans stuff, right? There's been protests happening, and so students have been organizing as well. Um, and, and so it's, I think it's important to highlight that stuff so we, we don't feel just the weight of the white supremacist stuff. Like, okay, there are people fighting back, we're fighting back, we're, we're doing, you know, people doing the work around the country, it's important, so. All right, thank you so much again for your question. Anyone you. else over there? Hi, my name is Kendra Whalen. I use she, her pronouns. And my question is sort of backing off of that answer you just gave. And that is, what advice do you have for teachers who are in these states and municipalities that are being restricted in these fascist ways, especially when they might be facing criminal penalties from these laws? Yeah, that's the question, right, right now, is, uh, at least in a general sense. Like, how do you push back and keep your job or maybe not get arrested? Um, and I want to be clear. There are times in history where maybe we should, maybe you should get arrested and be okay with that. Um, and I also want to be clear, we may be reaching those times pretty soon here, right? Like, or we may be in those times, depending on the state. I think, I think we need to start thinking about a level of civil disobedience around this stuff um, that, that hasn't sort of come, come to fruition yet, because it's just so bad right now, and so, and it's getting worse. So, um, but my, my, my advice is the same all around in the sense that like, you can't do this stuff alone in isolation. You know, um, like if you are, you know, in, 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 in my, I have, I have Japanese American family and there's a saying like, if, you know, if, if you're the single, the single nail sticks up, right, and gets, and gets hammered down. Or, or actually in, in my Hawaii side of the family, um, you know, who, there's some organizing history and, and one of the stories is, one of the sayings is like, you know, single chopstick, you can break. Handful of chopstick, you cannot break it, right? And so it's, you gotta find some solidarity, you gotta find people, and, and so I really encourage teachers to, to not act alone, to either find or develop networks of folks who are doing similar work, so you know people have your back, so at least you're not by yourself. Um, and then also building networks with parents, right? Like, you know, I was just talking about my friend Melissa Temple in, um, in the Waukesha district, um, and this whole stuff around Rainbow Land, right? And she said that the parents, the supportive parents there are amazing, and they're like running social media campaigns, and they're like, they're, they've been sending, like they've been giving teachers like gift support bags, like who are, if you, you know, are you stressed out about all this stuff out here? Let me, let's give, let me give you this goodie bag. Like, like they've been doing amazing stuff. Um, and so organizing with parents too is also important because parents are super powerful. And at, frankly, administrators are scared of parents, like we're seeing that now. And so if you've got parents have your back, like that's gonna be offer you protection as well. So you just gotta build networks of solidarity, find spaces where, where, you, where people can take care of you because you're way less powerful um, you're way less powerful by yourself than, than you are with, with, with a group of people. All right, thank you so much. Anyone else? Yes, over there. I feel like we're passing the plate right now. I know, I like it, I like it. Thank you for a wonderful conversation. This is really important and um, it's, I'm just really enjoying this. Um, the question I have is this. Have you done any research in terms of international education, what their systems are like? And have you compared it 
with what we have in the US, is there anything that you would want to implement and, you know, that they're doing better? Yeah, I haven't done that, so I don't want, I don't want to pretend, and as a researcher, I'm like, I think too often like professors pretend they know all this stuff, so I want to be clear. I haven't done a ton of international comparative research. The main, there's a couple areas I have done, I've looked at a little bit, right? So obviously around testing. And the thing is this, like our whole, our whole system of accountability and testing and sort of neoliberal market-based approach to stuff, school rankings and all that kind of thing, like that has spread around the globe. Like it's spread all over Asia, it's spread all over Australia, it's spread all over, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, at least Northern Europe, um, certainly in Chile and, and places in, in, in South America. So like that's spread and so um, in many ways those systems have been transformed to sort of the worst of what we have too. You know, I talked to colleagues in Chile, like they have, and or, or same thing in like England, right? They have public school, like they publicize school rankings and it's purely based on test scores. So could you imagine them just like, the news, take whatever major newspaper just saying, okay, here's every public school in, you know, southern Wisconsin. Bam, 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 bam. Imagine that, like, that, and that's happening all over the place. You know, we know that the tests, the test, like, culture is, like, dominating in Asia, too, and, and like, um, you know, the students are, you know, complaining about like, being treated like test-taking robots and cram schools. There's a whole industry of cram schools over, all over Korea and, and China and Japan. So that's stuff I know, and so I wouldn't borrow any of that because um, we know that. <laughs> like, um, you know, the main thing that I think often people have pointed to is like looking at like some of the Scandinavian countries, right? For instance, um, that was a huge thing. It used to drive, it used to make me nuts. Like all these education reformers who are promoting standardized testing and promoting no child left behind and stuff would be like, hey, we need to look at Finland. Like they, they do great. Their education system is great. They reformed it entirely. And, and then I'm like, okay, yeah, but what did they do? Well, they didn't do a bunch of high stakes standardized tests and they like totally revamped and invested in how they educated their teachers and oh, Finland actually has like free medical care and like, you know, you actually get maternity leave when you have a baby there and they actually pay for you to, they pay for all of your medical care for when you, like when you have the baby, like all these things are paid for. Oh, maybe we should be doing that. But those ideas weren't borrowed from Finland. Um, it, it ended up being like, oh, we need to revamp teacher education, but not in the way Finland did it. Um, it just got sort of, um, uh, again, it got twisted. Uh, this, the whole Finland model got twisted when, when folks brought it to the United States. So that's the kind of stuff, but that's, that's the stuff I would do anyways, right? I wanna, we, need, we need to be paying for people to live in this country and understand that housing and health and education are human rights, basically, and should be supported as such. All right, again, thank you so much for the question. All right. All right. I think that's it. Okay. Wayne Al, Dr. Dr. Wayne Al, give you your credit there. <laughs> you don't got to call me doctor. Thank you <laughs> so cool much Peter, for man. taking the time. <laughs> Thanks to everyone at, at Beloit that's had us here. Again, I'm Peter Medlin. This is, you guys have been the first people to ever witness a teacher's lounge being recorded. That's nice, really cool. Nice. So thank you to everyone that, that's shown up. You guys had so many wonderful questions, and I really appreciate it. And thanks so much. Everyone. Yeah, thank that's you all. It. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate it. All right. All right. Thanks so much for listening to Teacher's Lounge. It was an absolute honor to get to host this show live in front of an audience. Thank you to Wayne for the conversation, to all the folks at Beloit College and the Weisberg program who helped make it happen, including Dr. Gloria Bradley and Josh Moore. And of course, thank you to everyone who came to listen and ask questions. It is really easy to forget that anyone is listening when you're on the radio or doing podcasts, so it means the absolute world to me that anyone showed up. So as always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on the show. It's how we get great guests 
podcasts like Way Now, send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. Wherever you're hearing this podcast, please do subscribe, leave us a rating, share it, whatever you can do. You can subscribe to the Teacher's Lounge newsletter to keep up to date with everything having to do with the show. A big thanks to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ofs for the music you hear each and every episode. I've been your host, Peter Medlin, and we will be back with a brand new Teacher's Lounge very soon. See ya.